Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I am once again your guest host, Jason Rosenbaum. Chris <laughs> McDaniel is at a conference this week. Joining me in studio is... Joe Manis. And continuing our incredible series on behind-the-scenes players, our special guest is... James Harris from Jefferson City. I guess you're the pride of Washington, Missouri. I am, home of the corncob pie. Because <laughs> last week I made a big deal about how Jack Cardetti is from St. James. So welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, this is this is really exciting because I was really glad that James James was even willing to come in from Jefferson City for this Um as our listeners know, we've been switching off between Republican and Democratic uh, consultants, and um, it, this is working out very well. Our whole point is to give people a sense of who some of the key players are, and James is definitely a key player. Uh, a number of the statewide Republicans or wannabes have hired you for various um, things. You, used, you started out, I mean, when I really knew you was when you were working uh, for then Governor uh, Matt Blunt, but I knew you were around before. But before we get to that, right. we got to go, we go through the usual spiel where we ask you where you're from, how you got into politics, yes. that sort of thing. Yes. So give us tell us a little about yourself and how you got into the Missouri political world. Sure. Um, born and raised in Washington, Missouri. Um, really got involved in politics because of my dad. Uh, my father was a Republican committee person, and when I was probably starting at eight, uh, he would make me help him go door to door. Whether it was one of our county commissioners, um, I remember a little later John Ashcroft when he was running for re-election. My dad thought it, we had to go knock on every door in our ward in Washington. And my father would always talk about public policy more from probably his vantage point was foreign policy and defense. My father was a career Army officer. And so that was kind of how I thought about it. And really when I went to college at St. Louis University, just a block from here, it was kind of a time to um, – learn more about ideas, policy. We were uh, really blessed. Um, it was 1996, Bob Dole. I remember my first presidential rally yes. I went to was at the Arch. Uh, I think it was on Labor Day. And then he came to Sluice campus. Yes, I covered that. And um, Of course you did, Joe. <laughs> I did. <laughs> and it was an opportunity. Uh, I got involved in campus politics. We'd started bringing different speakers in, uh, Charlton Heston, Lady Thatcher. Yes, the I remember that. I remember the Margaret Thatcher one. And it was really a Great opportunities. You're learning to open your eyes to different ideologies um, and beliefs. And then um, one of the first times I actually, I think I met Joe Manny's was outside the Fox Theater. I want to say 1997, 1998, when then President Clinton came to town for Jay Nixon for who, a fundraiser. Uh, who was running for the U.S. Senate against Kip Bond. Yes. And a, a number of the uh, black elected officials in the Black Caucus locally were upset with Nixon over the whole DSIG thing. And they were somewhat... Um, uh, they were threatening to disrupt not the dinner itself, but to have a meeting beforehand. So the president of the United States ended up having a meeting with a number of the top African American leaders to try to quell this split with um, Nixon. But yeah, you were there. No, absolutely. And then um, after college, uh, I worked in uh, the state senate on redistricting, and that was a great educational opportunity to learn the demographics of the state, the voting patterns of the state, how reapportionment matters. The Republicans had just taken control of the state Senate, so the Republicans had a seat at the tables that related to so – this, 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 this was 2001. 2001. 2001, yeah, two, 2001. 2001, 2002. Right. Yeah. And so you were dealing with Joyce Abusi on that. I was. I remember her and Joyce <laughs> – her and Lloyd Smith were the two uh, people in charge. I was just the person you know, drawing the maps <laughs> on the computer. But uh, it was it forced me to learn how these counties voted, et cetera. And then at the end of uh, – that, I had a friend, I was looking to go to law school, and I was looking to go to University of Texas, and a friend said, you need to meet the hanging judge. And I said, I'm not going to meet some guy named the hanging judge. <laughs> well, 
Well, I ended up going to Texas. I met this guy, uh, Judge John Carter, who's a congressman, and he was his nickname was the Hanging Judge. And ran it was a new <laughs> congressional seat from reapportionment. Texas had picked up two seats that year, mm-hmm. and was his campaign manager. And uh, that race really thrusted me, and it forced me really one of our core strengths of our firm to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, the strengths of winning Republican primaries. We had an eight-way primary. There were three demographic bases or geological or um, bases, uh, Bryan College Station. We were over in the Austin suburbs and then went to the Houston suburbs. And we were running against the son of the chairman of the Energy and Commerce Committee, Brad Barton, who had $800,000. We were running against a self-funder, Peter Waring, who had spent $4 million in a failed congressional race two years before rented a house and spent, uh, I think, $1.8 million in this <laughs> district. And then I had a judge who was 60 years old, and we had maybe $120,000. Wow. This, thank, lo- this, thank- looks, this makes the 2008 uh, Mo9 primaries look a little tame by, by comparison. Okay. But continue. continue. No, no. So uh, fortunately, Texas has a runoff system. I'm a big proponent of the runoff system <laughs> because we only had to – you know, make it to the second round. Right, because the runoff is what, the top two? Top two. Okay. And um, so it forced me to learn certain core strengths, you know, how you make your weaknesses a strength in a campaign. Like my candidate was the oldest member of Congress elector, the oldest of his freshman class when he was elected. Mm-hmm. They would We made that a strength, that he was seasoned, experienced. We turned our opponent's strengths, one self-funding, into a weakness where he, we talked about his Maseratis, his uh, uh, his different cars, his house. He lived in River Oaks, Houston, so we started messaging, calling it a posh elite neighborhood, so much so that the newspaper started referring to it as the elite or posh River Oaks neighborhood. Did, did you feel conflicted then in 2008 when you worked for Blaine Luchtemeyer in 2008, right? I did. He's just he's a good country farmer. <laughs> did you feel okay. conflicted after that experience working for a self-funder like him? No, I didn't. Um, that race in Texas, um, I guess going back, I would say is – but we had a good candidate and turned me, uh, helped me learn if you have the right candidate, right area. We increased our vote. We did all these things to where our opponent, and we did mail pieces. Everything in the, con- uh, in the runoff was contrast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we really, where voters came out, we won 60-40. I went yeah. to Washington with them, was his chief staff. So I guess that's how I got started. So, so then w- when did you come back to Missouri? I came back in late 2003. I remember I flew into St. Louis, had uh, I think an early – dinner or late lunch with uh, then Secretary Blunt and Andy Blunt, and I think Jewel Paddock, talked about working on the campaign, then came back to work on his campaign. And um, it was a fun campaign. I mean, Governor Blunt, to this day, I kind of hold him as the example of what other candidates should have as far as his work ethic, his intelligence. And he was running against Democrat Claire McCaskill, who had knocked off Governor Bob Holden in the primary. This is just for our listeners. Yes. Right. Okay, go ahead. And um you know, he was a good candidate. There was Republican pressure built, you know, wanting to have the governor's mansion back. You had a strong candidate who crisscrossed the state. I, I think during the election year, Governor Blunt probably went to Hannibal nine or ten times. I know he went to Kennett four or five times. I mean, he was out more than Republicans since then really have gotten around the state. And he had the advantage of not facing a primary. There was rumblings that Kenny Holsoff might run for governor. That didn't end up happening, and he had a clear field, was able to raise just a ton of money and face, you know, the winner of a really de- fairly divisive primary. Yes, yes, very divisive primary. So, you know, obviously Governor Blunt won narrowly, and you went to work for his administration. I don't think we've had many former Blunt aides on. We've had a couple of Holden aides on in the recent weeks, but 
Tell me what you did in his office and what that experience was like. Yeah, including the uh, uh, remember the uh, fee offices. The fee offices. <laughs> yes, we had a lot of stuff. Um, about that. The governor offered me an opportunity to serve as director of boards and commissions. So in that op- position, was helping to make recommendations for the various boards the governor's filling, uh, judicial posts, uh, county vacancies, um, fee offices, which I'd never heard of uh, before he was elected, and. Uh, I was really blessed to have a person, Tom Dicely, who had that position for John Ashcroft, came back and joined the administration and helped train me. And he one day said, you know, James, um, he had two pieces of advice that were very true. He said, you'll make one person happy and about six or seven upset, which he was very true. And then day one, he said, the marigold round will end. I remember we were in Kim McClure in the chief staff's office, and I was sitting there with some the other people, and he said, guys, the marigold round will end. And I'm like, geez, you know, we haven't only... You know, been here a couple of days. You know, can we <laughs> enjoy? But he gave, had good advice on grounding yourself, working hard. It was a wonderful opportunity. Um, you know, my what I learned from Governor Blunt, uh, he set the example. I mean, it's truly one of the few public officials that I've seen has been an intellect. I mean, he was always reading, always learning. Good leadership style for a governor as far as how he would you know take information, his thought process, how he you know set the expectations for the staff. And it was fun. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, you were in the middle of the whole fee office controversy, which actually, I mean, in fairness to Governor Blunt, he really ended up changing the whole system. The fee offices are where people go to get your driver's license, or the, and uh, it's called a fee office because they're ma- basically privately run, and there's a little extra lug of a couple dollars put on as a fee that pays the operations for the office. But there were several state-run ones, but most of them were these private ones. And the, whoever is governor often give them to uh, allies who are, like, technically run the office, although usually they hire the regular staff. Now, you were in charge of doling these out, and I did a number of stories for the Post-Dispatch about it because there was some controversy. But, as I said, the governors traditionally, if a party changes hands, then the fee offices change hands. But one of the things that Blunt did eventually, because the controversy, was make them more where people had to actually bid mm-hmm. for them. And this is something that Nixon has continued, but yes. really Blunt started it. Do you want to talk a little bit about that whole change and why that happened? Because that really is a major change, really, in how things operate. Yeah, I think part of the grumbling began, you know, Democrats have been in charge for 12 years, so many of these fee agents had had, you know, nice, sweet, uh, making some money. They had their fee office, and they didn't like it losing. Then you also had the start, I think Roy Temple did a very good job in 2005. You know, he was kind of unemployed. He started fired up. And he had institutional knowledge of the government, and he had a lot of people within the bureaucracy that were, you know, telling him things. So he was kind of very effective in driving a narrative. It was kind of a change, so reporters were accessing that for information. Um, and the other fee offices changed. There were some grumbling people who got a fee office who didn't. Uh, the governor believed that it was time to change things, and he sure. ended up uh, competi- competitively bidding them. I think that was the right thing. And Governor Nixon, to his credit has continued that process. And uh, surprisingly, like, my father has a fee office still. Yeah, because your grandmother had one. He did. <laughs> and so he goes up there every day, and I kind of shake my head, but I think it makes my mom happy because he's, like, out of the house. <laughs> like, the first year my father retired, I could tell there was, like, tension at home because my father was home. And then once he got his routine between going to the USO and up to, up there in the VFW, he's things have you know, gotten <laughs> You know, I have a happy. high regard for former – Governor Blunt, despite all the you know nasty questions I threw at him as a Capitol reporter, I think he always took them with with good grace and humor. But it it, it did seem like he was in some ways under siege. A lot of his administration, probably from a lot of Democrats who are out of power, maybe for some 
controversies and missteps. What was kind of your impression of how he liked being governor? And do you think that his decision not to run might have been a sign that he was kind of didn't have the the comfort of being there and wanted to do something else that was less, uh, you know, you know, public and in the spotlight, so to speak. No, I think the governor loved uh, being governor. He loved leading. That I mean, it's really his core strength on who uh-huh. he is. Whenever you make changes, and especially after twelve years of Democrat control, first time in a generation you have a Republican majority in the legislature, the left was going to crow at everything the governor did. Now, I, partly it was a reverse because when Holden was governor, the the re, Republicans, I think, were much more aggressive than yes. they were under Carnahan. And you had two years of Republicans in the legislature where they started passing bills, the governor's vetoing, right. whether it's tort reform, workers' compensation reform. So there was a lot of pressure on, hey, here's an opportunity. Let's run the field. And I think if you look at Governor Blunt's record, he did a lot. And that's one yes. of the things uh, – that's you know, what he said. When If you go back and watch the YouTube video of why he decided not to run again, he said, you know, I've accomplished many of the things that I set out for. And I think people might have chortled at that at the time. But when you really think about it and you think about it logically, he really did accomplish a lot of things. Some of it, some of them were not universally liked, like the Medicaid cuts and whatnot. But it did seem like the second term may have not had, as he said, that sense of vision to really do anything else. I mean – that's what he said. Well, yeah. And there were a lot of things that the administration did. Like one of his strongest members of the cabinet was Mike Keithley. And um, he was a great minister, administrator of uh, – commissioner of administration. Yes. And there were a lot of things just moving government into the 21st century as far as like putting light sensors. I mean it was amazing the millions of dollars that were saved in state office buildings, things that weren't sexy but it was just good yeah, Just management. putting sensors on so that they turn light, on. Yeah, and updating boilers and air conditioners and how much you could drop your energy consumption and save mm-hmm. money and – so there, there were tons of things like that that you don't really talk about. It's just good, efficient management. And um, one of my contrasts, I would say, with this administration is probably not, you know, this governor is kind of hard to pin him down on policy or what his agenda is or vision. And as a result, the state hasn't moved. You really need an executive that has that vision, that has an agenda of here's where I want to take the state. Mm-hmm. And, and one more question about him. Do sure. you think he'll ever run for public office again, or do you think he's pretty much done at this uh, point? You know, I don't know. I hope he does. I think he'd be great at some point if he wants to come back and serve another uh, term, but uh, I think he's happy with his family. And by the way, if, if Governor Blunt is listening now, if you're ever in St. Louis, you are invited to, to answer yes. that question for yourself. Yeah, we'd love to have him on the podcast. I think he'd be great. So you left the Matt Blunt administration before the administration was over. Am I correct? I did. I'm not a government employee. I twitch too much and sitting behind a desk. <laughs> so, and so you started your firm actually before I he did. was out of office. And, uh, you want to talk a bit about that? Sure. Um, kind of learning from, you know, again, my first congressional win was I thought there was a need for campaigns to have people that understood how to navigate primaries, how to build successful plans, how to um, – Take your opponent's strengths, make them weaknesses. Take your weaknesses, make them strengths. And so we started that. And, you know, as this state continues in many ways to trend Republican, I think there will be more primaries, hopefully not on the statewide level. Hopefully we can work some of those out. But uh, there's more of a niche there. And then in working with uh, different corporations, I saw that corporations don't know how to communicate with public officials. And I'll give a good example. Uh, the morning Tom Salk the, the dam or reservoir blew, I was going into uh, the governor's mansion to have breakfast. And then Senator Kevin Engler called and said, Tom Salk just blew. Does the governor know? And it's like 645. And I said, I have no idea. I'll go find out. 
So I call an Ameren official, and I said, hey, I, you know, the state senator just called and said Tom Salk blew. Oh, no, just a minor breach. We think a sensor went out. So I go up, oh, go up to the third gosh. floor. Ken McClure's there. The governor's there. I'm like, yeah, I just hung up the phone with so-and-so from Ameren, and they said it was just a minor breach. And then a few minutes later, we see, uh, I think it was Fox 2, had a helicopter down there, and on TV, like the whole <laughs> no, mountain's it's gone. It's a tsunami. Just, just for our listeners, it was not a minor breach. The entire <laughs> dam basically was destroyed. It destroyed basically a, what is a national state park. It, it did. And, and it, it was a huge issue for several and, years. And uh, the uh, superintendent, there were some people who were injured, yes. but luckily nobody was killed, and it basically blew them out top of the mountain off. Yeah. And my the reason I mentioned that corporations, their corporate culture, they, they were not disseminating information quickly enough. They weren't figuring out how to talk. And often businesses or associations don't know how to communicate with elected officials and how to move their agenda. And so one of the things I've worked on and our firm does a lot of work is, you know, helping corporations, whether it's, commu- you know, outreach, public affairs, grassroots, how do you get your people to talk and to communicate more right. effectively with public officials. So who do you? Who are some of your corporate and political clients right now? Let's see. Uh, uh, Speaker of the House Tim Jones, uh, Majority Leader John Deal, um, representative, bunch of representative Caleb Jones, Senator Wayne Wallenford. Um, I guess in the past I've ha- been very uh, happy to work for Lieutenant Governor Peter Kinder. You've um, done some stuff for State Auditor Schweik, yeah, haven't you? I have. Uh, Great auditor Tom Schweik, um, several members of the congressional delegation Blaine Lukemeyer, Billy Long. Um, so I've been really happy. A lot of the different issues I've worked on, probably been public policy, whether it's uh, working on judicial reform, labor reform movements, and a lot of the stuff I would say is setting the framework for when we have a Republican governor. You know, if you begin educating, raising awareness on certain issues so that you have a Republican governor that can really lead this And one of the things, one of those particular issues, and this will kind of parlay into a current event right, right. now, is judicial <clears throat> policy. You've been very much kind of an outspoken advocate to change the nonpartisan court plan, which for our listeners, I mean, you can look it up and read how it is for yourself. But it's basically a system where a committee chooses a panel of judges to present to the governor. Usually it's three. And the governor picks one, and that that person is either the judge for the Supreme Court, the Court of Appeals, St. Louis, St. Louis County, Jackson County, and Greene County. Right. And I may be missing a couple of courts. There. And the the panels are uh, the size differs depending on the uh, what they're pointing for, but it's made up of an equal number of uh, members of the Missouri Bar and appointees of the. Well, actually, it's not equal, and that was actually the well, issue. Well, then it's well, they're the, staggered. They're, um, they're staggered. But is I mean, what I'm it's at. three members of the bar, three lay members, right. and, and the Supreme Court judge. Correct. So it's actually four attorneys, and that correct. was actually what was at stake in 2012. But yeah, I learned about it working for Governor Blunt. Actually, when one of the uh, first over here in the Eastern District uh, panel for the Court of Appeals opened, I um, went and met with uh, Tom Simon, who was then yes. the clerk of the court, right. and just learning about the process. And then he and then Chief Justice Wolf, who's now the law professor at uh, St. Louis University School of Law, came over and met with the governor, I think Kim McClure and I, and kind of said, hey, governor, this is the plan. You know, we'll have panels at work for you and you know, find good people. And right. it's based on – and what we learned very quickly, um, you know, and, and, and bless attorneys, you know, they're – I think they mean well, and there was a need probably for the Missouri plan that was created to get politics out. The problem is over time, lawyers became a little more dominant in the process. Then you saw little fiefdoms within the legal community like the uh, Missouri Association of Trial Attorneys started. They were better at campaigning to get their people on this commission because they realized if we have people there, we'll have a little more influence. And then you saw the people coming out 
that made panels were little either related to a MATA member, a MATA member, you know, et cetera. And really in the 21st century, there should be a question, is this a good process? You know, I think their goal was to get politics out, but I would submit that politics is involved. You know, if you had three or four members of Missouri Right to Life or the NRA on a judicial selection committee, people would be opposed. And these attorneys, you know, they have an interest in the outcome of the type of people that sit on the courts. And the courts matter to everyone. Because they impact our lives. You know, you were, just came from downtown with a very important yes. you know, activity by some judges. And so who those people are in the process, and we've removed information from the public. And so when you see these retention elections, nearly a third of the voters do not participate because they have no idea. Right. And, that, and what you were referring to is the mayor of St. Louis and the recorder of deeds just announced, and this is this, today's Wednesday or Thursday. Thursday. And this podcast may air a couple days from now. But four same-sex couples were married last night in City Hall. Um, it, it probably will go to the court system. Mm-hmm. It really will probably thrust uh, Attorney General Coster into this fight because I think he's going to have to defend the same-sex marriage ban. I'm ju- I'm just telling you this news now. I don't think you were there, and you're n- you haven't really. No, no, thank you. But but what's kind of your reaction to, to this? And what do you think? You know, given your activism with the court system, how do you think this is going to play out? Well, I remember once. Um, I think it was Justice um, Scalia. He came to Washington University. And I heard him, and he said, "Often the courts pushed in awkward spots by cases because you know the other two branches have not resolved or they right. come to a head." And I think this is an issue. You know, Missouri voters, we have a constitutional amendment uh, that defines marriage in our constitution as between man and woman. Now, if people want to change that— They have to change the constitution. We should have a constitutional amendment. And I would argue by the judges doing this, then, you know, the attorney general will have to make a decision to defend the Missouri constitution, which is pretty clear here. Now, if people want to challenge that, you know, there's recourse through the courts or a new constitutional amendment. It is an issue that is changing. In public policy, but the law as it stands today, I'm kind of hard pressed to see how a judge could, you know, rationalize when the Constitution is pretty clear. Now, I mean, you've worked for candidates like Sarah Steelman and others who have, you know, emphasized their opposition to same-sex marriage. But in ten years ago, it passed by 71 percent of the vote. When the same year Governor Blunt was was going along. Are, are you? Do you think the issue has changed in Missouri since then? I, I pulled the issue. I think. Um, the spring, and it's changing a little, but I think fundamentally the majority of Missouri voters still believe in the constitutional amendment. You see break it, the just like nationally, younger people, 35 and younger, have a different outlook. People 60-plus are much more supportive of the amendment. It's an issue that is changing. We're seeing it around the country. You know, the question probably is I would submit it's not the right recourse for activists to go to the courts and force them to make these decisions, that the proper course is to put new ballot measures, new measures before the voters, and either have them sign it or have, as some states have, legislature and governors have come together and enacted new legislation to, you know, allow that. And that's probably the proper recourse. Now, because uh, they've brought up this issue, this will probably be, regardless of which way the courts rule, this is going to be a court case in Missouri for now at least a year, if not two years. And of course, the Missouri Attorney General, Chris Conster, is the in effect, the Democratic nominee right now is officially Democratic candidate, but barring anything, he's going to be the Democratic nominee for governor. And do you see this becoming a, an issue in 2016, either in this race or other races? Because this will probably still be in the courts is what I'm predicting. Yeah, I think it's important uh, to see will the, the attorney general defend the Constitution 
that he's taken an oath to or not. And I think that is something, you know, the Democrat model that Claire McCaskill made to try to be in Governor Nixon to be successful was right. to, in outstate Missouri, tell people you're not liberal and to, you know, that you stand up, you're a common sense person, kind of like old Democrats used to be you know, decades right. ago. And I think the attorney general's path is to continue to do that. And I would say a case like this makes it harder for him in southern Missouri or outstate Missouri to say, I'm a conservative or I am share your values. Well, let's parlay a little into 2016. Sure. Um, as Joe mentioned, Coster is essentially the de facto Democratic nominee. As I mentioned on the other show, the rest of the ticket for the Democrats is not really materialized yet. Except for Secretary of State Except Jason Kander. Except for Secretary of State Jason Kander will be running. We don't know who will be running for, you know, lieutenant governor, attorney general, treasurer, because treasurer is term limited. Right. It, it does seem like Republic, there are enough Republicans that could fill a ticket because, you know, whether they have, you know, six figures in the bank or whether they've run before. But it seems like, you know, the sorting hasn't really been finished yet. There's potentially three Republicans that want to run for attorney general. Um, you know, there could be two or three that run for governor. How do you see on the Republican side that ticket filling out, especially considering that the the uh, the Democratic field for governor has kind of already been cleared, but the Republican one hasn't really and materialized. And this case, this case kind of re- ele- elevate the importance of the social issues. In some sure. Ways. And I'm a very optimistic on for Republican success in 2016, and partly okay. if you look at um, where the state has gone the last 10 or 20 years, uh, you know, we have, the Republicans have override or will have come August override majorities in both legislative chambers. We control 75 percent of the congressional delegation, and we now have a majority of the county courthouses in the state of Missouri are held by Republicans. Yeah, because the rural courts already are elected. So yes, I'm just. Um, we have. Uh, you know, county commissioners are Republicans through the state, majority of counties. Um, Mitt Romney carried the states by more votes than Ronald Wilson Reagan, 258,000 vote margin. Right. right. If you look at 10 years ago, uh, when Governor Blunt carried Buchanan County, I knew that night he would be elected governor. I remember saying it. And the uh, governor was a little more cautious at the time, like, well, it's early, James. As but, is his personality. Right. But um, continue. That's right. And, and you look at some of the Democrat counties that are shifting – and part of that's because of President Obama, uh, but Jefferson County, we're seeing a change. I mean, Republic, we have Republican state reps down there. We have um, Republicans have done well in the county. Presiding commission, or not, no, the county executive, executive. is Republican. If you look at right. old Democrat counties like Lafayette County, and where, which was um, from the area where former Congressman Ike Skelton yes. hailed right. from, Correct. they've got Republicans there, Republican representative in the state house. So there's a fundamental shift. And the Democrat have increased the only place in the state their win percentage or win margin has been St. Louis County. Mm-hmm. And Republicans can work on that. But everywhere else, they've lost ground statewide. Let me, let me ask you a question on that Jefferson County, for example. Because sure. I know you've been kind of – one of the issues you've been pushing is right to work, or at least a lot of Republicans have been pushing right to work. Do you think that emphasis on that issue or legislation that might be seen as hostile towards organized labor might – undo the ground that has been gained in places like Jefferson County and may make it harder for statewide candidates to win in 2016? I don't because the lawmakers down there have kind of voted with how their constituents are. And I think the proponents, we have to do a better job of talking about freedom and how this will lead to more job growth and better jobs and better, more manufacturing jobs. But so you have a good foundation for 2016. And then we have a great stable of candidates. I mean, for governor, and there'll be some Later this year, I think some of that will be worked out. But whether it's, you know, Tom Schweik, who's a great auditor, he is he's a pit bull. 
First time in 144 years that the Democrats did not ch- run a Democrat for statewide office. And they could have. They could have. And just some crazy person like Leonard Steinmetz didn't just roll in and file. It's I mean, not just him, though, and I mentioned this before. I listed five candidates that could have potentially run for that. I, I didn't think Zweifel was going to run for that because, you know, he's probably looking at 2016. But Scott Sifton, Darlene Green— Gregory FX Daily has $600,000 on hand. Any of those people could have run against him. None of them did. You've got some who contend that uh, Attorney General Coster was behind the decision to discourage Democrats from running against Schweik for state auditor this fall. Now, Coster has said that was sort of silly, but he hasn't denied totally that he might have been discouraging some Democrats from doing it. And the theory was is that Coster would prefer to run against Schweik as opposed to Hannaway or maybe others, and that he didn't mind if Schweik ended up with a lot of money after the cycle to challenge the other two. I'm interested in your take on all that uh, because you've been sort of involved in consulting some of these people. Sure, um, and I think the uh, attorney general sometimes probably likes to play. I, I respect him, but too many little mental mind games or like Jedi games. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't in politics. <laughs> but the Republicans have a good bench, and whether it's Tom Schweik, he's got a, you know he's got a good uh, profile. Uh, Catherine Hanaway, who is a leader in our party. I mean, she was a trailblazer. She is someone who continues to work for Republicans and help them. Or Congressman Lukemeyer, who is a has the advantage of being from outstate Missouri. He's a hard worker. He has a good profile. He's one of the few guys that can go, he used to say, from the bean field to the boardroom. Mm-hmm. And in politics, on the Republican side, you need someone that can very easily navigate between outstate Missouri and the you know urban cores and communicate with voters. And he has that advantage. So we have, I think those three will work it out. I'm very upbeat because of the importance of 2016, and I think one of those. And then we also oh, – go ahead. Well, yeah. Well, one of my questions was one of the theories had been that some Republicans weren't too keen on having two, in effect, urban uh, Republicans. Hannaway is the former Missouri House Speaker but is from the St. Louis area, and Schweik, who's originally from the St. Louis area. How important for the Democratic ticket is it to have somebody at the top who is from rural Missouri as opposed to from one of the um, urban suburban areas? I think it's more important for the Democrats, for Chris Coster, to have a divided Republican Party where we're, like 2004, distracted, you know, battling out of primary. 2008, you mean. Or 2008. I was going to go say 2004 where the Democrats yes. were divided. Okay. That's yes. what I mean. That's what I mean. Continue. Um, that's the best path for Chris Coster. I think the worst scenario for the Democrats and best for the Republicans is a unified Republican Party with a candidate that can go, this is the path I want to go. Uh, I go to 2010 in Ohio. Governor Kasich was challenging Governor Strickland, start off 10 or 20 points down. Yes, Strickland was a Democrat. Was labeled as a investment banker. And every week, or it seemed like or every couple of weeks, John Kasich would make up a point. And his whole – he had a vision. He kept saying, you know, if you elect me, I'll change things. And I remember this TV ad he had where it was like a closed-down factory and then he f- pivoted to a country road that split. And he said, we know this one road. You know, kids are leaving – our state that can't find jobs. If you elect me, we'll have tough choices, but we'll go down this path and I'll try to create jobs. And I think that's the opportunity for the Republicans is to have the candidate that can embody that vision and unify Republicans. One complicating factor, though, is Lieutenant Governor Peter Kinder. Now, he said on her show he has not decided whether he's going to run for another term. I'm sure Fourth that- term. I'm sure it, when you talk about sorting things out, I could, for example, see Eric Schmidt instead of running for attorney general against- Jones and Schaefer, 
maybe running for lieutenant governor, but I'm not sure if he would challenge Kinder like Lager did. You, you've consulted for the lieutenant governor. What do you think he should do in this situation, given that there's kind of this buildup of potential statewide candidates that might need sorting out, and he might serve as an impediment to that, potentially? You know, the one thing I do know, no Republican will beat Peter Kinder. He's one of the all-time Republican vote-getters in the state. Um, I don't know what he's going to do. He loves being lieutenant governor. Um, but I would to add on your point on Senator Schaefer, you know, Republicans have a deep bench outside of that. You know, whether it's Speaker of the House Tim Jones, Senator Kurt Schaefer, Senator Eric Schmidt, you have three young guys here that are good profiles. They're working hard. You know, the Speaker's bus in a bus normally going all around the state. And by the end of this year, two years out, all three will have close to a million dollars cash on hand. Absolutely. Correct. That hasn't happened. And now, the problem on the Republican side is we have too many darn lawyers. Yeah. You know, and they all dream, you know, all little lawyers or little kids as lawyers, they all dream of but being I'm telling attorney general. You, but if those three can decide not to run against each other and they decide to fill those other slots, that's going to be a dangerous Republican ticket for the Democrats to run against them just because they have a lot of money. I think they have very attractive profiles, whether it be Schmidt, Schaefer, or Jones. And I think that could be beneficial, but they have to sort it out. But the downside is that, A, they're all three lawyers. Yes. And, B, they're all three from, in effect, urban areas. I mean, if you – Columbia, look – Columbia is kind of urban, look, but look, not really. In outstate Missouri, Columbia is considered Although, urban. to be fair, Schaefer <laughs> is a St. Louis native. But yes. Okay, continue. so we got three. No, um, but, you know, these are um, – What's hindered, I think, Republicans in the last two election cycles, we had candidates running for governor for one reason or another did not end up running. You had candidates um, that were going to run for other offices that backed out. So you had a shuffle. And to run statewide, it really takes about two years. You know, Democrat, their model is St. Louis, Kansas City, run to Springfield and say you're not liberal. Uh, I'm I'm stereotyped. But they need not to lose too badly in rural Missouri. Correct. But it's a little easier playbook. The Republicans... We have to go out into the country, Correct. and we have to go out there and raise money. And you can't just go to, let's say, West Plains one time. You have to go there several times. And, and the issue is not just percentage. It's turnout, how yes. many people turn out. And so you have more ground. You have to cover, get your message out there. So it really takes two years to, to run an effective statewide campaign, I would say, if you're a Republican. Yeah. We've been hindered by that. We've had a lot of shuffling the last two years. Okay. Um, and then we – So I'm, but I'm excited about 2016. We won't have – President Obama on the ticket. Um, I think you'll see, though, the results of what he's done to the state as far as shifting that conversion in outstate Missouri. I think okay. we'll have some good candidates, and it, and they're all getting ready. I mean, the Speaker of the House has been barnstorming the state for about a year or two. Yeah. And um, that's kind of a good foundation, you know, going to places, meeting people. But you mentioned, you know, Obama's not going to be on the ticket, but Hillary Clinton might. And this might seem as a surprise to a lot of our listeners, but I, I actually saw the breakdowns of her primary in 2008. She did remarkably well in the rural areas. And I don't think she would win the rural areas outright. But do you think it's possible if she gets better percentages there than Obama did that she may be a stronger Democratic candidate for the Democratic candidates than Obama has been. The, the Republican nominee will win Missouri. Now, it might not be the nine points that Mitt Romney did, but I looked 2008 in McCain. We were the only – that's when – a good example. We were the only then battleground state right. that McCain won. It was Correct. close. It Correct. was close it was because close. And McCain had a very small operation yes. here when you compare it to Mitt Romney or even um, Huckabee. Yeah, because Obama only lost the state by about – 4,000 votes. Correct. But I think that shows that um, Hillary Clinton 
Missouri has moved to being a Republican state, at least in the presidential politics. But nationally, she has other places she can go. You know, states, Virginia, they've come into play. North Carolina that continue to be competitive. Ohio that's always competitive. So I think they have to shift their resources in those states. So you're thinking we won't see that much of the presidential candidates in 2016? No, I think they'll come here to raise money. But that's it. No, I yeah, think, because Romney was here, and he hardly ever had any public appearances. He just did hundreds. Well, I think he knew he was going to win. Yeah, here. no, but that's <laughs> but my yes. point. Yes. My point is, evolving from a few years earlier, Jason, when you were probably still in college, um, it used to be that the presidential candidates for both parties, they came here not just to raise money, but to whip up people. They would have these big rallies. I mean, there was the huge Clinton rally downtown St. Louis. You know, stuff like that. You don't see that now, and I bet you we may never see it. No, the other day I read a report from Vanderbilt University on the 1976 election, and they had the presidential travel of then uh, Jimmy Carter. Right. And he came to Missouri, I think it was 19 times in 1976, or what they had documented as events. Uh And you're right, we didn't see that by President Obama, and we're not going to uh, see that in the future by candidates. Now, one more question sure. before we are rushed out of the studio. What kind of will be your role during this cycle, and what do you see the future for, for you and politics being? Sure. Um, you know, this cycle, it's fortunately, it's kind of sleepy here, so I've been doing some work outside Missouri. A lot More of my business has shifted in recent years on uh, public policy a lot of uh, national issues where we're trying to you know, generate. And I believe you're in Mongolia a yes. lot. Well, then I learned that actually from uh, <laughs> from politics and public policy, and realized. And um, I've gone over to Mongolia. I've done work over there. Uh, it's what a young, sort of vibrant. What do you do there? Uh, help U.S. corporations kind of navigate and learn how to do business there. You know, Western businesses, especially American businesses, we assume the world operates the way we do, and they don't. Right. Like in Mongolia. As an example, you'll have a meeting with an official at 1030. They'll roll in maybe 1045, maybe a little hangover from vodka. Uh, they don't have voicemail because they don't want voicemail. You have to go meet them. And they don't operate the way businesses do here, but they have tremendous mineral wealth. They have the second largest deposit of coal in the world, the third largest deposit of copper. Uh, Peabody Energy is over there in a big way. They have two of the world's largest mines, Olyutogoy and Tuwantogoy. So one of the things I have and a colleague that we've been helping U.S. companies that are trying to figure out how do we operate there, and it's all the same basically skills that I've learned in politics, how to help you know, figure out the two people aren't talking, how to help them, and start doing a little work in Central Africa, and it's been the same thing. It's helping U.S. corporations present an opportunity to them, help them navigate the problems, and it's, it's no different than being in the state house trying to help a move an issue, just so- different – Personality. So do you envision uh, dealing with any, like, the statewides in 2016 or doing some other stuff, or will you be increasingly focusing on your corporate role? I love politics, so I'll be involved. I've got a couple good candidates. I'm very excited about 2016, whether it's my firm, what we're doing. Um, I can tell I know I've had a few angry political clients when I've been over in Africa. And <laughs> I was like, I was in the Nairobi airport, and I, was, I got a call, and I could tell they're like, "Where are you?" I'm like, <laughs> "Was it was it Caleb Jones who is worried about his unopposed reelection this year?" <laughs> no, he just always goes like, "Where are you?" Or he'll, he's you can tell he'll come in and he'll ask Chris or Brittany or Scott in my office like, "Has James left the country? I haven't heard from him." And, yeah, I used to tell people. I don't tell them anymore. I'm being facetious there, but so this but, is uh, great. No, it's been a wonderful opportunity. Um, our firm, our core strengths, I would say, still are primary elections. That's been a lot of it, and taking those skill sets on our corporate clients and helping them. We'll have to leave it there. No, thank thank you. Thank you very much for coming and driving here. 
Um, for all of our stories, you can find us at stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe at? Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And you can follow James at? At uh, James M.N. Harris. What does the M.N. stand for? Michael Knoll. Uh, if I was, uh, people were going to laugh at me for telling this. My mother has said if I was going to be a girl, they're going to name me Mich- uh, Michelle Noel, and I was born near Christmas, so that's how I ended up. With so two they names. don't stand for Mongolia and Nairobi. No, <laughs> they do not. They do not. <laughs> Until next week, so long. <laughs>